0: morning friends, great to see you this morning. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth is the 8th book of the Old Testament, right after Joshua and Judges. We are in the final portion of the book today. God willing, we will conclude this uh, series. Ruth 4, beginning in verse 13, we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter through verse 22. So let's uh, follow along, hear the word of the Lord. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son, Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. The word of God. May he bless what we've read. And let's ask for his help as we look into his word this morning. Uh, Father, as we conclude this study of Ruth, strengthen our minds and hearts yet again to understand your truth. Strengthen me to proclaim it clearly. And Lord, quicken our hearts with your good spirit so that we might receive the truth. Press it into our hearts. May we see Jesus clearly in these pages, in these verses. Uh, May he be honored and glorified in all we do today. Uh, Christ Jesus, we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Jonathan had been promised a new puppy for his 10th birthday. He had a tough time choosing between a dozen likely candidates at the neighborhood shelter. Finally, he decided upon a plain-looking, shaggy little pup who was wagging his tail furiously. Why that one, his parents asked. Jonathan explained, I want the one with the happy ending. (laughs) (laughs) Well, unlike that little puppy, uh, many films, movies in our culture currently, uh, the trend is to not have a happy ending, to leave things unresolved, to leave things up in the air, to leave things hanging, of which I hate very first Spider-Man movie, for example. Most of us, I think, are uh, like the little boy, and we like stories with happy endings. Uh, David Strain explains why. I think it's because we're hardwired for redemption. We want stories with complete narrative arcs that move from crisis to complete resolution. And I echo a hearty amen. And this is why the book of Ruth, is such a great story. Not only a story, it is history. It is biblical history. These are real people we're talking about. But it is a great story, and it follows that narrative arc perfectly. Not A-R-K, A-R-C. ARC, goes from conflict to resolution. Uh, The uncertainty in Ruth and Naomi's future is eliminated. Uh, That tragedy that opens the story is resolved. Uh, even the guy gets the girl in the end. <laughs> Ruth has what many of us long for a, a good in a good story, resolution and redemption, or in other words, Ruth has a happy ending. And this is where we've arrived today after 5 weeks of seeing the conflict develop and seeing Boaz emerge and so what goes into this happy ending? How's the conflict resolved? What does God bring about in our characters' lives here in these last verses to to give Ruth a happy ending? Well, there are three elements that make up this happy ending, Uh, three elements in this last section of Ruth that help it reach resolution. The first one, uh, the first element we come to is uh, a new status. Uh, Ruth's life here in uh, these verses is now completely transformed through her status as the wife of Boaz and I want to mention two things about this new status first of all we're going to hear the status itself described to us and look at verse 13 again so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife now that sounds a little odd to modern ears might even sound barbaric to modern ears in what sense did Boaz take ruth it 's not that he swooped in on horseback and you know abducted her there 's no negative connotation uh, to this at all. Um, it, this is uh, just a way to describe the the Jewish marriage festival of this day. You recall the marriage festival uh, concludes or the climaxes when when the bride travels from his house to the bride's house. And he is accompanied by a troop of his friends. They go to the bride's house. uh, They collect the bride. She comes out, and they travel back to the groom's house uh, through the streets of the town, often in a very noisy procession, very joyful occasion, get back to his house for the actual ceremony, and then proceeds the wedding feast lasting up, uh, to seven days, uh, but that is the sense in which he says, so Boaz took Ruth. He came to her house and, and got her. She became his wife. That, that last phrase in particular, she became his wife. Notice her new status. This newest title represents a complete reversal of Ruth's status since she arrived with, uh, in Bethlehem with mm-hmm. Naomi you might not remember back 5 weeks let me remind you just how far she has come uh, back in chapter 2 in verse 10 it says then she this is as she's gleaning in Boaz's field then she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him why have i found favor in your eyes that i should take note that you that you should take notice of me since i am a foreigner she begins this account is a stranger to Israel, a foreigner, a complete outsider. And then go down a few verses to verse 13 of chapter 2, and she says this, Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. This could be translated, I, uh, I am your lowest servant, uh, the, the meanest and the lowest on the food chain, so to speak. And then we go to chapter 3, in verse 9 of chapter 3. Now she's gone from a foreigner to a lowly servant, and here it changes in verse 9. This is as uh, uh, Ruth has gone to the threshing floor. It's about midnight, verse 9. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Same English word. Uh, It's actually a a different term. I am your maidservant. This is where Ruth asks Boaz to redeem her. We've gone f- from that now to chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Finally, she receives this newest and highest status as the wife of Boaz. What was it uh, How is it that her circumstances have gone 180 degrees, have been completely reversed? Simply because Boaz married her. Because of this marriage, Ruth's life is is transformed. I I want you to think uh, how similar this is to when you and I trusted in Christ as our Savior and Lord. Like Ruth, uh, we too were aliens and foreigners because that's what the Bible called us. Uh, Paul says this in Colossians 121, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Remember, uh, the Moabites worshipped a different God than the Israelites. Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The very words that could have described Ruth in Ruth chapter 1. But when you and I turned from sin to trust in Christ, if you have turned from sin to trust in the atoning death of Jesus, you and I went through a change much like Ruth did, a change that the Bible even describes as a marriage. And Paul uses this figure of speech in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to these words. I feel a divine jealousy for you. He's talking to the Corinthians Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And then we hear similar language in Romans 7. Likewise, my brothers, you also uh, have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Another version says, so that you may be married to another to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit from God. Jeremiah even uses this figure of speech. Uh, Jeremiah too. In fact, there are other Old Testament prophets frequently refer to the Lord's relationship with his people as a marriage. But Jeremiah puts it like this. The Lord uh, says, The Lord, I remember uh, the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, how you followed me. So, Ruth's redemption and transformation is a picture of our redemption and transformation through our union with Christ. Listen to Pastor David Strain explain this. He says, when we read back in uh, 1 through 11, our passage from last week, when we read back in verses 1 through 11 of the formal transaction Boaz (laughs) conducted at the gate of the city as he secured the rights to marry Ruth, It might have first seemed like a cold legal business, hardly the most romantic preparations for a marriage. And it may at times be tempting to think of the Christian gospel in similar terms as a a shriveled and dry abstraction, a cold legal business, a thing of doctrines and duties and nothing more. But the truth is, if you are a Christian, you've been redeemed because you have been beloved by the bridegroom himself who has pursued you and made you his own. You are a Christian because Jesus Christ has given his life to redeem you for himself. We can read Ruth. And because of Paul's language in the New Testament, easily and, and appropriately think of ourselves. Ruth is a picture of what happens to us in our Redeemer. I tell you you are loved by your redeemer there's an old hymn Um, a hymn writer tried to express this from heaven he came and sought her the church is one foundation is the hymn title I believe from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died so you and I have a like Ruth we have a new status it's the highest title we can be called his bride I know this is difficult for guys to get your head around and you need to think perhaps of your wife your spouse and your affection for her that's the affection Christ has for you. Think of how you you pursued her. Think of how you wrote drippy letter after drippy letter. Dripping with feeling and passion is what I mean. And Christ's letters to us overflow with his passion for his bride You know, we read the book of Song of Solomon kind of, you know, when nobody else is around. You know, and it's referred to as describing the beauty of sexual love. Many, the, many of the Puritans thought that was a picture of Christ and his bride. And so we see this first phrase In verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. It is not a dead, cold thing. It is a throbbing romance. And the kind of desire Christ has for those who are his, that he pursues them and purchases them and makes them his own. And this is you, provided you know Christ. This is, this is that status. And wow, this is my kind of ending. My kind of ending. But that's not all about this new status. There's another thing we see, and that's the sun that comes as a result Uh, In her new status, the Lord gives Ruth a son. Verse 13 continues, And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Uh, Here, note that phrase, the Lord gave her conception. It is only the second time in the book where uh, the, the narrator exposes the invisible hand of God. He's been at work ordering events through his purposeful sovereignty. We've seen it again and again, but this is the only the second time where he peels back the labors and, and said, God did this. We know he did everything, but here he states it openly. And and he, he states openly that the Lord gave her conception. It's significant because, remember, she was married for 10 years to Malon, through which... There was nothing. No child. And now uh, God grants her to conceive. It, this is, again, this not unique to Ruth on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We observe that God creates each life in the womb. So it's not that this is the only time God oversaw a conception. Every time a woman conceives, every time, every time a woman conceives, It is God who forms that life. Again, uh, John MacArthur says, God is the power behind conception. Every life that begins, begins because God has foreordained. I love that word. It sounds so official, doesn't it? It sounds like it comes with a stamp and a seal. And kabam, there's a document foreordained, and that's exactly, exactly what it is. It's official. That life was planned, and this life is planned. And every life that's conceived is planned by God's purposeful sovereignty. So, a son is the second thing we see in this First element of the ending, the first element that goes into this happy ending is is Ruth's new status. Her life is completely transformed through her marriage to Boaz, and we've seen her status described and then her son mentioned. There's another element to this happy ending that I want us to see, and that's new fullness. Naomi's life is restored to fullness through the Lord's gift of a grandson, another one of the major characters. And we see that narrative arc come full half circle now to where uh, things uh, resolve for her. Let me mention three things about her new fullness. First is we see restored hope to this woman. Uh, restored through the birth of her grandson. And and look at verse 14 in your Bible. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Well, who's the Redeemer? Uh, Who are they referring to? We automatically think of Boaz. I mean, after all, he is the Redeemer of the book, the one who redeemed Ruth and Naomi. But the very next verse says that Ruth gave birth to this Redeemer. Uh, Verse 15, toward the end, (coughs) excuse me, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth uh, to him. And so the Redeemer they must be referring to must be Naomi's new grandson. And and, and that indicates to us that they're not using the word redeemer in its legal sense like it's been used up to this point. Boaz was Naomi's redeemer in, in the legal sense of the word, the one who purchased back the land that belonged to her late husband Elimelech. But they see her grandson as a redeemer in the sense that he's restoring a sense of of rest and security to Naomi. This this little lad was the one who would prevent the name of Elimelech from fading into oblivion. This this grandson would continue his name and retain his land for future generations in the land of Israel. Think, think of, oh, think of how different this hopeful scenario is from, from where she started the book, in bitterness and, and pessimism uh, that she was spewing out in chapter 1, back in chapter 1 and verse 20. Uh, we see this, uh, chapter one twenty Let me remind you, returning to Bethlehem, she said to the women of the town, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has has dealt very bitterly with me. I, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? But now we've come uh, 180 degrees. Now her hope is restored. The Lord has not left you without a Redeemer, this little boy. Who has restored your hope? There's not only restored hope; there is restored life. Uh, the second thing we see here in in verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life. Uh, restore means to refresh, repair. Life is the word for soul, the Hebrew word nephesh, the inner person. He will restore your soul. This is remarkably similar, this phrase, to that most favorite of Psalms, uh, Psalm 23. Listen to this, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. The way the Lord restores our life and vitality is is what this little grandbaby would do for Naomi. He would restore life and vitality to her. Verse 15 goes on, and a nourisher of your old age, that means someone who provides and supports. Naomi's grandson would provide for her as well. She would not be left in poverty and destitution if anything should happen to Boaz. Her grandson would provide as well. And then one more thing would bring Naomi restored life as verse 15 concludes, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, Who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Ruth would continue to restore life to Naomi. Look at the high praise. These are the women of Bethlehem telling her that she is more to her than seven sons. That is the highest possible tribute that they could have given to Ruth. Remember, Jewish, in the Jewish world was a male-dominated dominated society. Remember from Revelation 7 represents fullness and completeness. And, and so this is saying that the Lord has given you a perfect family in Ruth. Um, you might remember Samuel's mother, Hannah. Uh, She was having difficulty conceiving. And when the Lord uh, gave her Samuel, she offered this praise to him. And she says, the barren has born seven. That is, the Lord has given her a perfect family. And it's a way of of telling Naomi, the Lord has given you someone better than seven sons. Ruth is the perfect family. Uh, They are simply over the top with their praise to Ruth, consider consider where she came from. a Moabitus, a worshiper of a foreign god, and she has now provided Ruth with the perfect family. This wonderful, loving daughter-in-law has restored life to Naomi and would continue to refresh her soul. So we see not only restored hope in her grandson, but we see restored life, that, that, that uh, vitality, that, that energy, that joy of living. And then finally we see a restored fullness to Naomi. And look at verse 16 is where we see this. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, Lap is perhaps not the best word to use. The Hebrew word actually is bosom. So she was either holding him uh, like this or holding him on her shoulder uh, like this. Either way, I think, would allow for the word bosom uh, to be used. Uh, It pictures her picking up her grandson and holding him on her shoulder with his head nestled right here against her neck. It's an, it's an amazing thing to hold a baby there, even for a dad, to, to hold your child or your grandchild, that, uh, that warm little thing right here. It's a place of great warmth and, and tenderness and affection. Uh, Amber had many fussy nights, and I remember sleeping in my recliner with Amber asleep right on my chest. Uh, the only way she would sleep. And this this bosom that had been emptied by the deaths of her husband and sons was now full again because there was a grandson right there. And verse 16 concludes, and became his nurse, laid him on her bosom and became his nurse. Not in the sense of a wet nurse, but in the sense of a nanny, a guardian, like many of you grandparents, uh, are sometimes nanny nannies to your grandchildren, we see this restored fullness to Naomi. Her account that's traveled across that redemptive arc from emptiness here, over here to fullness. Fullness actually in the literal sense of fullness. There's a child here in those once empty arms as she nestles her grandson. I know that maybe your story hasn't traveled all the way across that arc like Naomi's has. And you're not, your story, your story It's still unresolved. Your story might be uh, incomplete at this point. Uh, The future is uncertain to you, and you feel like you're in limbo waiting for resolution. Uh, You're wishing that you could be in Naomi's shoes, having transversed from emptiness to fullness, but it hasn't happened for you yet. but you can, you can know this fact that one day it will. As our psalm this morning said, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And we know with certainty that that morning if not in this life will be on that morning when Christ returns for his bride and your redeemer will completely resolve everything and make all things new just as certainly as Boaz did for Naomi and I called it a fact Because this is what his word tells us will happen. I'm going to read to you. I want you to hear a few verses from Revelation 21 and hear this resolution and this reconciliation. And John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It will happen. While you wait for redemption, while you're still in the middle of that redemptive arc while you still wait for the morning to dawn it will come it will happen we see this in the second element of the happy ending and that's new fullness Naomi's life restored to fullness through this Gift of a grandson. Well, there's one more element of the happy ending that I want to point out to you. Uh, A new status, a new fullness, and finally, a new king. A new king. God was at work throughout Naomi's tragedy to raise up Israel's greatest king. Verse 17 uh, of Ruth 4. Uh, Says, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. Uh, Let me just pause there. Very, very unusual uh, for the neighborhood women to have done this. Uh, Scholars think they would have certainly had to consult with uh, the child's parents, Boaz and Ruth, before they could do this. Uh, It says, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son. Has been born to Naomi. Uh, technically, this is not Naomi's son. Technically, it's not even Boaz's son. It is Melon's son, the, the son of Ruth's late husband. Recall that Boaz the Redeemer is raising up a son for Ruth's late husband to continue his name. In the land of Israel. So why do they refer, why do they say a son has been born to Naomi? It's it's that loose sense of a descendant has been born to Naomi. He's certainly not her son. A descendant has been born to Naomi. A descendant has been raised up for her. And then finally we hear his name. They named him Obed. Or you might say Evid it simply means servant you hear this in uh, the book of obadiah that old testament prophet it means servant obed of the lord obadiah uh, uh, the name yah yahweh obed doesn't have that ending on his name and so it's a little more vague who did they believe he would serve Probably primarily, Obed would be considered a servant of his family or his tribe because he would grow up to carry on the memory of of his late father Malon and his grandfather, his late grandfather Elimelech in the land of Israel. He would grow to inherit their property. He would keep it in the family, which you recall so vital for an Israelite to do to to retain that possession given to them by God. And then more specifically, he would serve Naomi in particular. Remember, he would would restore life to her and and nourish her as she continued to age. So so to begin with, in this new king, we see a servant uh, born, and that's the grandson that we've been describing, Obed. But then further, we see another thing here, and that is a sovereign purpose. At the very end of verse 17, I want you to see what they say about Obed. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. God has been at work the entire time. Naomi's been oblivious to it. He's been at work in her life to move her to Moab to begin with. God has been at work in the death of her husband and sons, in their marriage to Ruth in particular. God has been at work in Naomi's move back to Bethlehem. God has been at work in their hunger, prompting Ruth to gather food in the field of Boaz. I think you get the point. God's been at work the whole time. He is. He's never stopped working to accomplish His sovereign purpose, not only in Naomi and Ruth. And Boaz, but also in the nation to produce, produce the greatest king Israel has had. Except for Moses, David, uh, humanly speaking, is perhaps the most important person in the Old Testament. Israel's hope for a Messiah. Their hope for a deliverer was rooted in David and the descendants of his family. And so throughout these tragic events, God has been at work to bring about something beyond Naomi's wildest dreams. Not only a loving daughter-in-law, better than seven sons, not only a family redeemer to provide for her and Ruth, but a a, a grandson. (coughs) excuse me who would who would go on to become the grandfather of israel's greatest king Amen. all this is transpiring and she has no idea and think about the same thing going on with you right now what is god doing you have no idea but uh, he's at work yeah. you know that i know that And we can declare it from his word. He's never stopped working. And you stuck in that narrative arc of of half empty, half full. He's working. It's coming. I don't know when it'll come. He's never, ever stopped working out his sovereign purpose for you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it even goes beyond David, doesn't it? Look at verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Anybody know who Boaz's mom was? Rahab. Rahab the harlot. It's no big deal for Boaz to have a Gentile mom. Gentile wife, he had a Gentile mom. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. And these same names, these names, pop up in Matthew chapter 1, which gives us the genealogy of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. You see the perspective and the trajectory of this story now? God's working through tragedies and hard providences of Naomi's life not only to raise up Israel's greatest king but to eventually raise up the king of kings. uh, Christ who ransomed us from sin through his death on the cross. Well, there's a... Uh, a godly scholar, his name's Leon Morris, his commentaries are so helpful and, and, and rich. Uh, he said it this way, uh, said what we're all thinking, and I, I just love that. A genealogy is, to, say the, le- to the say the least of it, a curious way to end a book. Uh, the author does not tell us why he has done this, and, and we are left to guess. But at any rate, we can make this comment. Throughout the book, in all its simplicity, there runs the note that God is supreme. He watches over people like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and directs their paths. God never forgets his saving purposes. The process of history is not haphazard. There's purpose in it all, and the purpose is the purpose of God. And so, friend, God's sovereign purpose is constantly at work in your life too. And nothing can derail it, even tragedy. As Job, uh, confronted by God, finally declared at the end of his book, he said this in Job chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted absolutely nothing can derail god's purpose for your life not even you even in the midst of sorrow and heartache david declared something similar Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast uh, love, uh, your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And, and the same in Psalm 57, uh, uh, David utters this truth when it seemed as though King Saul had derailed God's purpose for his life. And David says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I tell you, nothing, and I mean nothing, And by nothing, I mean nothing can derail God's purpose for you, not even you. No purpose of his can be thwarted. One pastor described God's sovereign purpose using this story. And he writes... One of the most beautiful movies of recent years was A River Runs Through It, based upon the novel by the same title. The movie told the story of the McLean family who lived in Montana early in the 20th century. The father of the family was a Presbyterian minister, stern but loving. His wife was supportive and nurturing. They had two sons the oldest, firstborn Norman, who tells the story, and a younger son, Paul. The real protagonist in the story is the river that runs through their part of Montana. That river becomes the focal point of their family life and the catalyst for everything significant that takes place in their individual lives. It was walking along the banks of that river on Sunday afternoons that the father forged a relationship with his young boys, turning over rocks, teaching them about the world and about life and about God who made it all. It was the river that the boys ran to after their studies were over and sibling rivalry and brotherly affection flourishes as they fished for trout together on that beautiful stream. When it came time for these adolescent boys to prove their moxie, they took a death-defying ride down the rapids in a stolen boat. It was on the river that young Paul made a name for himself as the finest fly fisherman in the territory When Norman came back from college searching for himself and his roots, it was to the river that he went to fish alongside his brother. The McLean family knew failure and success and laughter and fighting and change and disappointment, but always the river was there. It was the defining force and the spiritual center of that family. Montana would have been just a wilderness, their home four walls and a roof their individual lives just sound in fury if not for the river running through it all. I would like to suggest that there is a river that runs through the lives of Christian people and that river is called the purpose of God. Christian, whatever has happened to you in the past, whatever your present circumstances may be, whatever the future might hold, know this, a river runs through it. And that river is called the purpose of God. I think this, by way of application, requires two things from each of us. And I think the best way to say it would be to call it Submission. Surrender to the purpose of God. To acknowledge that it's there and that it's working. And perhaps not working the way you want it to, but it is there. And the second thing it requires is trust believing in the goodness of God and the precious fact that he is working all things for his glory and your good that requires immense trust I assure you he can be counted on he's worthy of your trust not because I'm sold some old pro who's all the way down the river paddle harder sucker I'm right along for the ride with you. In 1 Corinthians 10:13, Paul says these words. God is faithful. God is faithful. It requires trust. Surrender, and then trust. Well, this is a good ending. I mean, I think it's a great ending. And I'm so glad the guy got the girl. And I'm so glad things resolved. You can go home with peace of mind and take a good solid nap this afternoon knowing that this is all resolved. How did it resolve? What did God bring about in our characters to give it such a a good ending? Well, these three elements that we've looked at today, there's a new status for Ruth. Oh, man, it worked out golden for Ruth by the good hand of God, didn't it? Oh, Boaz, this... A rock solid man, this hero who stepped in and told the other redeemer to take a hike, and, and he marries her. And then there's this new fullness for Naomi. Literal fullness as she's got this baby right here, and you know grandparents and parents know what that feels like, and even big brothers and big sisters know what a what a what a great thing that is. Her her. God's gracious gift of a grandson. And then lastly, we see all the way into the New Testament. (laughs) Oh man, there's a new king. It's David to begin with. Obed, this grandbaby, is great David's grandfather. The greatest king of Israel. But he's also an ancestor of great David's greater son, Christ. And God has been at work throughout it all. Father, as we conclude this account, we we praise you for your hand at work and just uh, the assurance that you are at work all the time. And that's not, that doesn't mean that everything is is simple and easy, because like Naomi, you allow hard providences. And so, Lord, until our story resolves, help us to surrender to your purpose and help us to trust you trust your promises that are working. And may we see that morning with our Redeemer who arrives to make all things new. Jesus, strengthen us by your indwelling spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.